This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Welcome uh, to the, uh, our continuing Bible study in the book of Acts. Um, according to our, our tradition, uh, let's start in prayer in Arie. I'm, I'm, I'm anointing you to starting prayer. <laughs> thank you. Heavenly Father, we bless you and we thank you for the day you've made and we thank you now as the evening grows longer that we have renewed grace for the evening. All, all things are new this evening as well. We pray that you bless us with your presence. Give us grace to understand, Lord, as we seek not just knowledge, but wisdom. Not just wisdom, but the wisdom giver. Thank you, Lord, for all the saints. And thank you for teachers among us. We pray that you bless all of us together yeah. in study and learning. We pray in Jesus' name. Yeah. Amen. Right. Um, So we're looking at the Acts of the Apostles. We were probably in about session 11 now, um, and we've reached Acts chapter 6. Um, the emphasis we're taking is particularly looking at the Acts of the Holy Spirit, in other words, the ways in which the Holy Spirit works. And uh, some of them are fairly obvious, and some are not so obvious. Um, and some places you he is mentioned explicitly in what happens in the narrative, and sometimes it's you think it's just behind the scenes. So anyway, we'll, we'll try and pick up on those thoughts uh, again this evening. Um, I mean, the reason for focusing on the Holy Spirit is uh, really that the Acts of the Apostles contains the references to the Holy Spirit more than any other book in the New Testament. I mean, we, we tend to think of Romans as having a lot to say about the Spirit, and it mentions it about 30 times, whereas Acts mentions the Holy Spirit about 60 times, about twice as many times. And it's one of these things that Luke, who I'm uh, taking to be the author, that Luke likes to focus on, the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a few things when you, you become familiar with the combined Luke and Acts that, that he likes to focus on, for example, uh, prayer is one thing that you'll find stands out. He's interested in that. And I think it's probably because of where he's coming from. I mean, Jews took for granted that you prayed several times a day and it was just routine. Perhaps Luke's background uh, was different and it, it struck him as uh, noteworthy and for people particularly coming from his perspective. Um, Luke, most people would think he's either a Gentile or a Greek-speaking Jew. In other words, uh, someone, a uh, Jewish person who's uh, grown up in a Greek culture and speaks Greek as a first language, a uh, Hellenized Jew. Um, I don't really have a strong view on whichever way that goes, but uh, um, there's a case for both of them. Um, you know, Luke is a Greek name. Sorry. Um, Yes, it's a shortened name, I think. Of, um, I don't know. It's a... Well, I don't know whether Lucas is a... Is, the, is that Aria, is that the actual Greek name? Uh, as far as I know, it's definitely not a Hebraic uh, no. background name. So no. it's a good assumption that he was a Hellenistic Jew. On the other hand, he clearly learned Hebrew along the way somewhere. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yes. 
and he we'll, we'll talk a bit a little bit more about the the background of Luke and how it kind of impinges on the the way that he selects stories to include um, but first of all uh, just a, a recap uh, well what I thought I'd do was just recap the main events that we've seen so far in Acts and then we'll recap on this document which gives us uh, the background from last week's study, a summary of last week's study. So far in Acts, we have seen in chapter one, the ascension of Jesus and the promise of the Holy Spirit, the replacement of Judas by Matthias by the casting of lots, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and then Peter's sermon to the gathered Jews and on the Temple Mount, as I would understand it, and 3,000 being baptized, then the character of the new community of faith having all things in common. Then in chapter three, we, we read about the healing of a lame beggar, which led into Peter's second sermon, explaining the power of Jesus and the need for repentance. 5,000 believe on that occasion. In the next chapter, Peter and John are imprisoned and they testify about Jesus to the Sanhedrin, in other words, the ruling council, and they're released with a warning. The believers then pray for more of the same, more boldness to witness and more signs and wonders to talk about. I mean, the signs and wonders are things that are getting them into trouble with the authorities, but they're praying for more. Uh, so they're not praying for uh, the Lord to squash the opposition, but they're praying for more power to rise up and witness in their face. And then we see the generosity of the new community that... Um, people sell property and it's shared around. But this leads into a uh, rather different tone of story about Ananias and Sapphira who tried to deceive the Holy Spirit and both dropped dead. Um, we regard this a kind of as a sign, not a principle, meaning that it's clear really that the, that the Holy Spirit and the power of God was making a statement really for the people in the church. And it says great fear came upon them all, which is, uh, you can imagine, um, you know, there's no, there's no messing around with this God. There's no, you know, half measures in, in, in this faith. You can't have it both ways. And again, many signs and wonders and the healing of the sick and the demonized by remarkable means, like the shadow of Peter falling on them. I remember Jesus saying, you know, uh, he's done wond wonderful things, but he's saying that you will do even greater things than me. So the two that come to mind will be this occasion with Peter, where his shadow healed people, and then St. Paul, where handkerchiefs taken from him also had that healing power. As far as we know, that uh, Jesus didn't get involved in that sort of thing. So you could think of those as kind of greater, or slightly from the human perspective, more impressive. Um, and, and again, Peter and the apostles testify to the Sanhedrin, and then Gamaliel intervenes on behalf of the apostles. Uh, so I, I will just uh, do the uh, read through this, and uh, in terms of the recap of last week's session. So once again, the apostles receive the attention of the high priest, who isn't named, um, as there was a dispute that time, uh, who actually was the high priest. Annas, who was traditionally supposed to be high priest until his death, or his son Caiaphas, who had been appointed by the Roman consul. 
The text says they are jealous, perhaps the success of the apostles or of the miracle. I mean, jealousy in and of itself isn't sinful, as God himself gets jealous. But clearly in this context, it was the wrong kind of jealousy. An unknown number of apostles, just the leadership of the community, now numbering in the thousands, are imprisoned overnight to await trial and judgment the next morning, in keeping with Jewish law. In other words, uh, the, the council is required to sit during daylight hours. However, an unnamed angel of the Lord opens the door and instructs them to go to the temple and speak about the life, which is quite a nice way to talk about what they had entered into and were experiencing and sharing amongst each other. Why was the angel unnamed? We don't know. Angels can obviously speak in the common tongue of mankind. They can also affect physical objects like doors. What is the full message of the life? After the discussion, we concluded that the message must include the resurrection. Uh, it's also apparent that the angel not only unlocked the door, but locked it behind them, so that they, uh, it was, wasn't noticed at first that uh, the apostles had uh, been instructed to go and carry on the work and um, go to the Temple Mount. The, the apostles dutifully conduct themselves to the temple courts and are apprehended by the temple guards. At this stage, there's been no Roman involvement against the, the Jesus movement. The tensions and opposition has been exclusively inter-Jewish. There's been no heat, hint of preaching rebellions against the occupation power. The gospel continues to grow regardless of who occupies the temporal power in this world. The Sanhedrin, which was a, a mix of Sadducees and Pharisees, this is a group of about 70 of the most powerful people in Judaism. They're convened and the charge being Jerusalem is hearing the gospel that they, the Sadducees, are being charged with the guilt of the blood of Jesus. Peter again has the opportunity to reply. He declares that Jesus has been resurrected. After his death on a tree, which demonstrates historical knowledge, Jesus is also given titles as Prince and Saviour. Interestingly, not given the title king, at least not in this place. Peter again declares that repentance is part of the process for forgiveness. This has been a consistent theme in Peter's proclamations thus far in Acts. The Holy Spirit is noted to be a witness of the resurrection and the subsequent growing community of followers of the Messiah. Peter then declares that the Holy Spirit has been given to those who obey the Messiah we learn that obedience is also a key element in the following of Jesus and is connected to receiving the Holy Spirit. Gamaliel, the teacher of Saul the Apostle, defends the Apostles, the Jesus movement, in this chapter. His granddaughter, Joanna, has been a follower of Jesus, um, mentioned in Luke 8. His defence speech grants the Apostles reprieve from the death penalty. The apostles receive the traditional 35 lashes and are released. Acts notes that the apostles consider themselves blessed as being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Suffering becomes a theme in the epistles. Suffering produces hope and joins in with the sufferings of Christ unto completion. So that brings us to chapter 6.
Um, well, chapter 6 and chapter 7 go together because they are all focused on Stephen. Uh, and slightly oddly, chapter 6 is the shortest one in the book and chapter 7 is the longest. So it kind of makes it tricky for this kind of exercise where we sort of try and carve things up. So we'll, we'll obviously deal with chapter 6 and maybe we'll approach chapter 7 in a slightly different way and um, maybe kind of skim through it. I'm not quite sure quite how far we'll get uh, when it comes to that. Um, but the first question, before we start reading, and um, the normal practice is to uh, read around uh, chapter 6, a verse by, at a time, round in a circle, I just want you to consider this question. Um, why is Stephen's martyrdom reported in such detail compared with the martyrdom of the first of the apostles? Now, I'm talking here about uh, James, the son of Zebedee, um, I'll read what Acts has to say about him. This is Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So actually, the, the martyrdom of James... Um, is summed up in one sentence. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, this was the first of the apostles. He doesn't get much detail, but um, Stephen gets a lot of detail. Okay, thoughts as to why you think that might be. I mean, there's some, some fairly obvious reasons and some not so obvious reasons I would, I would maintain. Uh, that's, yeah, the presence of Paul, and that, and that pictures up, yeah, that's um, definitely a key reason, yeah. And because Saul wasn't worth Yeah, yes, that's right, um, same point. Um, we can see that we're not told here, but um, right at the very first verse of chapter 8 says, and Saul approved of his execution. This whole uh, episode with... Stephen epitomizes the developing conflict between the new faith and the old traditions. It just hits the nail right on the head and goes right to the heart of what is going on through Jesus of Nazareth and where the deep and big threat to the existing traditions are. It's in the traditions of the elders and it's in the temple. Yeah. These are the key issues that he gets accused of and his whole defense is so huge because he addresses this perfectly. Yeah. And it, and it brings this right into focus, makes everything very clear for everybody involved. Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, I suppose, uh, well, another fairly obvious reason is that, as far as we can tell, Stephen is the first martyr. And that's, you know, uh, quite a, a thing to happen. Uh, um, but the, the detail, as you say, the, the, of his account, um, yeah, speaks into the, the situation, particularly of the perspective of the Greek-speaking church. Um, we, we won't go into the detail of that just at the moment. Um, but this, this key thing is that it's where Paul, uh, or, or Saul as he's called, where, where he um, makes his entrance into the story. Now, one thing that... Uh, uh, Aaron has previously been pointing out is that you can't really think about Acts 
as just the story of how the church spread from Jerusalem to the, quote, ends of the earth, or if you understand Rome as the ends of the earth, because it doesn't talk very much about the spread of the gospel east or south, uh, just really um, up the, the, uh, through the Levant and across the Roman Empire and ending up in Rome. So it, it documents an important aspect of the transmission of the gospel. Um, but it doesn't, it's not a chronicle of, the, um, of a general uh, summary of the expansion of the church. Uh, and uh, something that, that um, I mentioned in the first meeting is that uh, I think this is to do with actually Luke's motivation for writing it. I mean, there's always a human motivation involved. Sometimes it's pretty much aligned with what, what the Lord is doing. But I think in this case, Luke is writing it for a particular purpose. And that purpose is to provide a briefing document for Paul's defence counsel for his trial in Rome. Now, not many people agree with this point of view, but I've, I've looked at it from lots of different ways. And... It fits in with the big and the small issues and the, the unusual aspects of the story of Acts. Anyone else heard this other than from me? This, this idea? I have it written down here, but I'm sure I learned it in this room and that it was possibly mm. by you. From you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the m most obvious curiosity about the story of Acts is how it ends, kind of just suddenly, in the sense that a bit of a cliffhanger, such that you ask, well, was he acquitted or not? You know, he was there under house arrest in Rome, freely talking about the kingdom of heaven, and, well, did he or did he not get executed? That's an odd way to finish a story, which is um, focus, so much focusing on the life and times of Paul. Um, and that's the other curious aspect in it, that... Um, the first part of the narrative is, is about Peter and some of the apostles, and in this case, the, uh, what we begin to see here is the way that um, it's, the action is being performed by people other than the apostles, in this case, Stephen, and then later on, Philip and others. But you, you see that Peter, as the leader of the church, kind of drops out of the narrative from about chapter 13. Or, or, well, he last appears in chapter 15 in the Council for Jerusalem. Although, because Paul is a primary player in that, you can understand why that's there. Um, and then, you know, Peter goes on travels. He goes to Galatia and he goes to um, he, Ephesus and Rome and different places as we understand it. But none of that's recounted. Um, so this focus on Paul has to be another, a key aspect of the, um, uh, of the motivation for the writing of, that, that Luke did. Um, we'll maybe pick up on that thought a little bit further, but I want, let, let's get on with reading chapter 6. So I'll, uh, I'll start reading it. It doesn't matter which version you've got, uh, whatever language you're happy with. And we'll just read round and carry on. So, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, 
A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to save tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Lord. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they said before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs about, among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Syrian and Alexandria, as well as the members of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Verse 13. 13. I got lost. And they set up uh, uh, false witnesses who said, this man never ceased to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. All right. Thank you. Um, uh, oh, by the way, I, I didn't really make it clear, but I, I'm quite happy for people to chip in with questions and ideas and comments uh, as we go through, and we'll uh, try and bring it all together. Um, so, um, verse 1. Uh, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So... The phrase these days, well, um, maybe a year or perhaps just a few years after Pentecost, in a sense it doesn't really matter, um, the timing of it. We're always interested in these kind of details, but uh, quite often they, they're not there. You know, we like to, I mean, we know that Luke wanted to write an orderly account, uh, which, which I, in part means um, chronological. You know, he, he's coming from a Greek background and he thinks like probably most of us in this room think. It's just like things organised and set out neatly. Um, actually, I think I'll, I'll remind us all of uh, Luke's introduction to his two-volume work. So this is the first few verses of Luke's Gospel. He says to Theophilus, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's one sentence in Greek. Um, I'm told I don't read Greek. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, it's we have uh, a Greek-thinking person writing this and producing an orderly account, uh, but not as detailed as sometimes that we would like it to be. And then you have this phrase in verse 1, increasing in number. So there's a problem, but it's the, uh, it's the problems of growth, not the problems of death. I mean, whatever happens in the church, there'll be challenges and things you've got to meet up, but you need to want to have the problems of growth. So the, num the disciples were increasing in number, and then a complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. So the Hellenists is, is the uh, slightly technical term, meaning the, the speak, Greek-speaking Jews from outside of Israel, uh, usually referred to as the diaspora, you know, the, the areas around the Mediterranean that the, uh, the Jews had been scattered to on more than one occasion and in, on and further occasions to come. Uh, so Hebrew was a second language to these people whereas Greek was their first language. Uh, and uh, Alexandria was a uh, particularly important centre of the Hellenistic Jews, and actually that gets mentioned lower down in the passage. And then you have the word Hebrews, meaning these are the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and those primarily who had grown up within Israel, or in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And for them, Greek was a second or a third language. But uh, um, I can remember um, David Pelegi saying that occasionally people, he gets asked the question, well, what language did Jesus speak? And he knows that question's coming from something like a, an American or a Briton or Australian who thinks that people speak just one language. <laughs> um, it's, uh, whereas, countries where you're in a minority within a minority, you will end up speaking multiple languages, and it's unremarkable. And I think, actually, Jesus not only spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, he was probably capable in Greek as well, because the, the Galilee area had much more contact with trade routes than the folk living up in Jerusalem. That's kind of up in the mountain and slightly out of the way um, for, and not many people who weren't interested in stuff to do with the temple wouldn't bother to make the journey, but the trade routes went up the coast or nearby the coast and then up through Galilee on the way to Damascus. And so the lingua franca, Greek, was important for people. And I think actually Jesus would have probably got some employment from the rebuilding of a city quite close to his hometown. Uh, it's not that the city is not mentioned in the scriptures. This is Sepphoris, um, and it was destroyed uh, about 4 BC and the, because of a rebellion, no surprise there, uh, and it was now being rebuilt when Jesus was growing up. And Jesus being not just a carpenter but a general builder, he could probably have had some work from the, because well, that's where the money was, rebuilding Sepphoris, and it was just about uh, three miles away from Nazareth. Uh, so yeah, I think it's quite, quite believable that Jesus spoke all those three languages. Um, 
So in this situation here, uh, we've got the problem of a, a kind of a language barrier. So I think that was part of the problem. But also, um, it could have been down to just the assumption that uh, people knew about the mechanism of the food distribution to the widows and not realizing that the Greek-speaking Jews may not just pick up casual conversation or information about this, how, how the system worked. Now, the, uh, one, one thing I was just reading the other day about explaining about this was that um, a significant number of Hellenists uh, were in or around Jerusalem effectively because they retired there. Okay, in, that, in those days, uh, you had devout Greek-speaking Jewish men. They would often move with their wives to Jerusalem, or at least in the surrounding area, so that they could live their final years in the Holy Land near the temple. And then the husband would, husbands would frequently die first and leave behind widows who had no nearby family to care for them. So these are people who, who are in, in the diaspora and have a longing to return, but actually are either because they're indentured, they're, they're slaved, or because they just, you know, it's a, it's a big deal to up sticks and move. So they only do it when they, uh, family responsibilities allow it or when they're old. And so you end up with these elderly couples in and around Jerusalem and the men die first. So this, this was the original cost of geriatric? Yeah, yeah. Well, you could, you could look at it like that. I mean, then you have to add to that the, um, well, the, the scriptural injunction to look after widows in their affliction. Um, and, and so there was a, actually a, a system within the, uh, the, the, the Jewish uh, uh, community there of providing a daily distribution of food. And... Uh, I read that that was um, things like bread, lentils, and fruit. But there was also a weekly distribution, which also included clothes. So it wouldn't be much of a surprise to think that the, uh, the community of faith in Jesus copied that method of looking after the widows. So they would have had a daily distribution to the widows. Um, and so we have this situation that the, um, the Greek-speaking widows are... Uh, missing out on the on the handouts on on the on the charity. Um, so uh, next verse, um, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, "It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables." So here, at least, we've got this clear statement mentioning the twelve. In other words, all the apostles are in Jerusalem at this point. They may have been doing it, traveling around locally, but I don't think up to this point they would have done very much in the way of going out with the gospel. Uh, so there they are all in Jerusalem um, and a big meeting is called. And I think the full number uh, is to emphasize the fact that the, it was important for the Greek speaking Jews to be present in this meeting. I mean, I'm not quite sure, I mean, there must have been thousands present, and the only place you can gather thousands together is actually on the Temple Mount, but whether it happened there, I don't know. But, uh, 
There's a, they didn't have conference centres back in those days. All, anything of that nature had to happen on the Temple Mount. Um, I mean, it, I suppose it could possibly have been leaders, but it, I think the, um, the impression you get is that it was a large gathering because it actually affected um, lots of people and lots of people cared about this issue of you know, charity to those people in need. Um, now, the, um, the apostles said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So they are recognising the need for distinct roles and duties, which is fine. Um, but do you remember what, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he said, I give you an example to follow. And so as well as it being important for division of duties for people most, most appropriate for their calling, what Jesus demonstrates on that occasion is that for the leadership, there can never be anything below them to do. So he said, I'll give you an example that you should wash one another's feet. Um, so the other thing that sprung to mind was the, um, so what they're doing is to um, decide, okay, we need help. We need to, to delegate things. I can't handle all of this stuff on our own. So uh, the 12 or those people recognising that authority need help. So who can think of a good Old Testament example of someone who took advice on the need to delegate? Mm -hmm. From in from yeah called his father's was father-in-law was called Jethro. Jethro yeah okay um, yeah okay out of interest let's just read that so that's um, we're going to flick to Exodus chapter eighteen. It's the, uh, yeah, the first part. Jethro turns up with the rest of Moses' family-in-law. Um, from verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Okay, I'll read that. I like that phrase, people who hate a bribe. Very... So the equivalent here is this 
deciding to um, enlist help. In particular, it's going to be Greek-speaking Jews because of the nature of the problem that was presented. In other words, a communication problem or a lack of uh, sharing of information uh, uh, appropriately so that people knew how things worked. So, verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So what he's saying is that he's talking to the Greek-speaking disciples and they were to choose the seven from among their own number. Why seven? Hmm? Why seven? Well, uh, I don't have a reason other than saying it's, it's, a, lovely, it's a good number. Um, you can always have a casting board if you have an uneven number of people. Yeah. yeah. And it's small enough that they can converse together quite easily. Um, I mean, having a, a discipleship group of 12 takes quite a bit of managing, but it's possible, obviously. <laughs> Seven is more manageable for people, you know, just to uh, uh, work together and coordinate together. And then, but... And possibly there was a ratio between the number of people to choose and the number of people talking about in terms of serving. Yeah. And maybe, yeah, they wanted maybe representations for different parts of the, the diaspora. Yeah. yeah. So that, yeah. That would be a, a good way. But uh, yeah, seven's a good number. So we just have to um, accept, accept guesswork on this one. And the criteria are two, are two things, full of the spirit, in other words, not just naturally able, but demonstrating the spirit or demonstrating the fruit of the spirit, as we would say. And wisdom. Now, obviously, wisdom is a good thing to have, but and sometimes we're a bit fuzzy about actually what it means. But in this case, I think what it means to be those people who are able to make decisions that prove to be good ones. So sometimes you're presented with a situation and you have to decide one way or another and a person with wisdom will, you know, more often than not, or most of the time, make the right decision which is vindicated as time goes by. And then what the uh, apostles say is that we will appoint uh, to the duty. So it's, there's um, cooperation going on here. So the choice is made by the people who feel that they weren't represented. But the delegation of authority comes from the apostles. Mm -hmm. um, so the apostles' role was to publicly seal the choice and confer conferring authority in a public context. So in other words, these seven men have authority. And so you know, they will receive your complaint and they will decide wisely how to sort the problems out. And um, any, any comments? Um, and verse four, um, and they say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Um, so in the, in the um, verse two, they just refer to, uh, you know, we won't give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. But here, um, I think it's one of these things that Luke likes to point out as a reminder that actually prayer is a big deal in leadership. Um, and so that the, uh, the apostles are devoting themselves to prayer. 
and to the ministry of the word, such that their preaching was founded in prayer. And I, I did, did a kind of word count, because I was curious about this, about the use of the word prayer and pray and, pray and prayers in um, Luke's Gospel, and it comes about 28 times in Luke's Gospel and 30 times in Acts, and not nearly so many times in Matthew, Mark, and John. Only comes twice in John. And maybe this reflects somebody who's just, uh, it is so ordinary to think about prayer as the life of Jesus and his disciples that he doesn't see it remarkable or noteworthy to include in his gospel. Um, Mark has it mentioned 12 times. Uh, but yeah, as I say, Luke, Luke latches on to this aspect of the life of the disciples and the life of Jesus. And there's a place later on in, in Acts, uh, we see it as part of Peter's routine. Uh, let me just give you that verse. Um, so this is Acts chapter 10, verse 9. So Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter has a vision. So he's down um, in Caesarea. Uh, and as they were on their journey and approaching that city, Peter went up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So that was his lunchtime time of prayer. Mm -hmm. um, he, and he had this, it just mentioned that uh, as a matter of routine. And Luke mentions that. Um, and then when, when it goes on to talk about Cornelius, he had a routine or altar of prayer. So this, this um, Roman soldier, this centurion, had been copying the habits of the Jewish people that he admired and lived among. And he followed also the habit of set times of day for prayer. So verse 5, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. So, um, what, what I like to see is that the way that Peter, as the spokesman for the apostles, handled this situation, demonstrates wisdom. Wisdom in action, you know, pr a practical, you know, in other words, getting the, um, the people to, who they knew and recognised as both uh, people of integrity and wisdom and full of the spirit. And then what they would do was acknowledge that and uh, publicly give them authority and pray, pray them and over them. And Stephen in this list, as you can see, is singled out as being full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that phrase is repeated later on in the chapter. Philip, number two in this, appears in chapter 8. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But nothing further is heard about the other five people. Um, now, one thing, because I'm just curious about these things, is that the, the last person in the list, Nicholas, it mentions a place with him. None of the other people get mentioned a place name. So he's mentioned in terms of Antioch. Now, this is a little bit of a speculation, but I think um, that Antioch was significant to both Luke and the person he was writing to, Theophilus. It's actually a well-established tradition that uh, most theologians would agree that Luke actually was born and grew up in Antioch. In the narrative, he pitches up at Troas, but uh, I mean, he may have been working there, but there is a, 
a well-established tradition that he um, was part of the church in Antioch. And on the basis of that little verse that we read from the beginning of Luke's Gospel, I think also Theophilus is a member of that church, that he knew kind of to a small extent. So he, he respectfully addresses him, but he knows the kind of things that Theophilus has been taught. And in writing his Gospel, he is you know, fitting in the background and doing him a favour. Um, um, yeah. Hello, Mr. Chen. Um, the, um, I think Prochorus, in, in the Greek Orthodox Church, Prochorus was um, uh, um, held as being uh, St. John's in many instances. And um, in a number of the uh, paintings and things around uh, on Patmos, okay. you know, uh, St. Prochorus is, uh, is featured there on St. Okay. John. Right. Uh, do, do you know how far that goes back? I mean, is it like from the to, from the church fathers? Probably from the fathers, yeah. I think maybe second century. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's about when the understanding of um, Luke has linked with Antioch goes goes back to the second century. Um, whereas Luke, Luke's prowess at at painting and um, producing icons dates from the eighth century, which is. It's a little bit more of the kind of wishful thinking type of tradition rather than the solid ones. I mean, people hold by it in, the, uh, in some sections of the church, particularly I think it's the, the Greek Orthodox, but uh, yeah, that, that's a, a rather later tradition. But yeah, so we have um, uh, this curiosity of, of Antioch mentioned in connection with other people. And actually, Antioch is mentioned in a positive way in about half a dozen different occasions through the Book of Acts. It's significant for... And sometimes it's mentioned in things which are not really essential. For example, it's where the, Christ, the, the believers were first called Christians. And so I think uh, Luke is picking up on a place that both he and his reader, Theophilus, uh, relate to. But that's just kind of reading between the lines. But sometimes these kind of backgrounds helps fill in some of the some some colour to the story. Okay, so um, let's talk about deacons because uh, the, the word deacon is often associated with this set of uh, seven people. Um, and often referred to, these are the, the first deacons in the church. Though the word, the Greek word diakonos, actually it doesn't appear, although the, the verb to serve, it means to serve, roughly. It does appear in verse 2. But that verb is also verb diakonio, is that right, Ari? Diakonio is uh, to serve. To serve. There in verse 2, yeah. yeah. And, but it also appears in um, uh, 1 Timothy 3, where that's the paragraph that talks about the qualifications of deacons and what they are, and it talks about them serving with this, uh, this verb. So you can, although it's not explicit, um, these people, these seven, do qualify in terms of character. Uh, you know, they meet the, the, the criteria in a general sense that um, Paul lays out in his letters to Timothy and Titus. Um, 
and what it certainly appears that they act as, as deacons even if they weren't called that at the time. Because it's, it's reasonable to assume they did other acts of service as well as food distribution. And we see that for sure in the case of uh, Stephen. He's, uh, he's out there, you know, taking on all comers uh, and uh, being more of a match for them. So verse 6, they set them before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So this idea of laying on of hands is something which is used in various contexts. Uh, for example, with healing and the gift of the Spirit uh, in several occasions. And here just commissioning and laying on of hands. Um, so multi-purpose action. And verse 7 the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we have them, this phrase, multiplied greatly. I mean, this is one of the verses where um, Luke does a kind of summary statement. So he balances his narrative with accounts full of detail and then sometimes he just puts in one of these summary statements to kind of close off a... a uh, a section. So despite the high level of opposition and persecution, they dramatically increase in number. I believe tens of thousands is mentioned in uh, Acts 15, a little bit later, so, yeah. uh, all obedient to the law as it were. Yeah, definitely with multiples of thousands. Okay, so let's have a go at coming up with some of the contributing factors that result in the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem? Because the priests themselves were very accepting. Um, yeah, that's, um, that's not one that I thought of, but yeah, that would have actually... Um, okay, you get the impression of the context. It's the, not the high priest, you know, it's just uh, more the rank-and-file priests. But yes, that would have people would have respected their choice and respected their ability to check against the scriptures the the truth of the validity of what is being taught by Jesus' disciples. So yeah, that's a good point. And if there were that many of them, they would be meeting up on the Temple Mount a lot. I would have thought. So therefore, the priests are there and they're hearing and seeing all this going on. So. Yes, I'm sure they are. Yes, and. Uh, so I think we're a year or more into the um, uh, uh, to, to the progress of the church following the resurrection. So, um, how big was Jerusalem at the time for thousands of people to to meet together for fellowship? Um, how big was it? Oh. Oh. Josephus uh, describes hundreds of thousands of people killed in the city. It could be debated as how many gathered into it under the siege or not, but it was a very large city. Yes, I mean, it had ex expanded yes. in terms of population just prior to the uh, AD 70. In fact, the sad thing was that Jews streamed into the city. They walked past the ranks of the 10th Roman Legion and came into the city, while the believers went the other way. Uh, I don't know whether you know that the... Um, the Christians in Jerusalem 
heeded Jesus' advice, you know, in the, in the uh, sermon, uh, not the sermon about the Olivet Discourse, where he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its destruction is nigh. In other words, and then don't waste any time, just get out of town. And we understand that none of Jesus' disciples died in the rebellion, in, in the um, destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. They headed out of town, went down the valley to Jericho, crossed the river, and then north uh, into the independent area, uh, went to Pella, the first city you come to on the far side of the Jordan. Um, and actually, that factor itself was a, a cause of uh, uh, upset between Jews and the Messianic movement, uh, that they had somehow dodged the bullet. But, uh, they, they, ran, follow. they ran away. Yeah, they did. Uh, yeah. But it, just, just imagine seeing um, people streaming into Jerusalem past the Roman armies. Apparently they, they stood still for about three weeks waiting for something to happen, reinforcements or orders or you know, instructions on how to conduct themselves. Meanwhile, Jerusalem filled up. And uh, Arya, does Josephus say that about over, is it a million killed in that rebellion? Josephus describes numbers like that. It's hard to believe in retrospect, but uh, we don't really know. Hmm. The crowd numbers are always hard to believe when you, you know, when yeah. or, uh, you know, police reports of how yeah. many people mm -hmm. in the demonstration are mm -hmm. arrived. Just going by the extensive area enclosed by the walls and the building that was going on already outside the walls that was soon to be enclosed the, and the, the congestion in which people would have lived, mm -hmm. uh, it certainly was many tens of thousands. How many? Yeah. Hundreds of thousands. Mm. Yeah. So yes, and the only open place to to meet would be on the Temple Mount to do things. And um, okay, so yeah, we've got that. So the one factor is the the priests. Okay, and some other factors why there was this amazing multiplication of disciples. Just think of the what's been going on in the first few chapters of Acts. Miracles. Miracles. Signs and wonders. Absolutely. The fact that people lived so close together, they couldn't escape each other. Yeah. They, you know, mm. they couldn't escape being preached to by their yeah. relatives, etc. Yeah. And I think preaching is another thing. In other words, what we've got here is undaunted preaching and proclaiming of the gospel. So, you know, they... The apostles were hauled up in front of the council and told not to preach. They get released by an angel and he says, carry on, more of the same, up on the temple, you know, first thing in the morning, up there. So they did that. So undaunted, absolutely. So, uh, so in other words, they showed a fearlessness and a courage and a conviction of what they were talking about, which in itself makes an impression. Um, other things that we can... Other things we can pick up. Think of what, how the community was working. You know, we have a couple of paragraphs in the parts that we've studied that picks up on what was going on in the community in Jerusalem, the community of faith. I mean, people were 
would be talking about it all the time, wouldn't they, amongst themselves over a cup of tea, like, like they talk in Jerusalem to this day, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No getting so away from it. Yeah. So, let me read for you a verse. So, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This kind of attitude was part of the life spoken of by the angel. You know, this community life together. And for, for the outsider looking in, that would have made an impact. How they had their... Uh, they really looked out for each other. But then snags arose, like the one that we were just reading about, uh, with the distribution to the widows. But then what you have is prayerful leadership and organisation emerging. So decisions are made to make it work. So, and so th this is another, I've got, you know, there's four or five factors here building on each other. And this is the last one that we appear in chapter six. And I think contribute to this amazing multiplication of the numbers of believers in Jerusalem. Now, going back to this point about the priests, um, there were thousands of them involved in the temple worship. Um, 1 Chronicles chapter 24 tells us how they were organized into 24 courses, 24 family groups of priests. And there's, uh, I mean, they, they served a week at a time, two times a year. Um, and then when the major feasts were happening, that everybody had to be around. So they served for all the major feasts certainly all the pilgrim feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Sukkot, and maybe some other ones as well. So that um, accounted for uh, the yearly rota. And so um, we, we made the observation that this, these events were certainly happening after a year, which meant that all the priests had several opportunities to hear what was going on. And then clearly they responded. Um, I mean, the, the impression you get from the Gospels is the opposition from the priests, but usually it's the, it's the, uh, uh, the influential, you know, the, uh, the aristocratic Sadducees, uh, um, who are the people whose voices are heard. And in, in the Gospels, it's the voice of opposition. But the, the t this turnaround shows the power of the Spirit, combined with the obedience of the apostles and the disciples. Just think about um, Gamaliel's influence on the whole thing. Um, <clears throat> if he was hanging around in Jerusalem as well, that um, his uh, restraint, yeah. um, or his restrained um, judgment, yeah, uh, playing an having an impact on you know conversations that he was having with um, other members of the Sanhedrin over that year or so before Stephen. Was Gamaliel influenced by what happened to Paul, or was Paul influenced by Gamaliel? Um, I think probably people would argue that Paul was influenced by Gamaliel. You know, it's one of the things that Yeah, although Paul demonstrates more the attitude of the um, 
school of Shammai rather than the school of Hillel. So um, Gamaliel is carrying the mantle of the school of Hillel, which is the more, uh, if you say, kind of liberal or generous take on uh, rules of Jewish life. Whereas the school of Shammai, uh, which has come a little bit later after, these were the very strict ones. In particular, they were particularly strict about defending the borders of Judaism, in other words, the fringes. Um, and it harks back to the behaviour of um, Phineas, is that, is that, yeah, in the matter of the Baal of Peor, just when the Israelites are coming to the end of the uh, wandering in the wilderness. And um, this chap turns up. Uh, Balak and uh, was hired to curse them but doesn't but what it looks like is that uh, reading between the lines of the scriptures it seems that um, Balaam the prophet couldn't go against what the word he'd been given by the Lord but he then advised the king Balak to say well actually what you want to do is get the Lord to turn against them so, uh, and so Balaam would have advised Balak to organise these kind of orgies and parties, because that way the Lord would discipline his own people. So that's the teaching of Balaam. This is the, Balaam appears three times in the New Testament, the way of Balaam, the error of Balaam, and the teaching of Balaam. And it's this teaching, in other words, <coughs> telling his paymaster, Balak, to... Uh, get the Israelites in trouble with intermarriage. And in that context, this chap, um, is it Phineas, is that, Arya, is that right? The, the, uh, the uh, one who uh, goes out and pins somebody to the ground in a tent. Uh, it was Pinhas. Pinhas, yeah. yeah. So, and, uh, and he gets... Uh, and a remarkable endorsement from the Lord of this kind of act of zeal for dealing with this uh, nonsense that was going on to do with intermarriage. So what I'm, the point I'm making is that it seems that someone, Paul's zeal is derived from that kind of behaviour. In other words, very aggressive and zealous about dealing with the definitions of the people of God as God had established them and required them to be maintained. So even though he, the, the curious thing is that he's taught by him Gamaliel, although but his behaviour seems to be much more of the school of Shammai. Is that, have you, have I explained yeah, that? Yeah, but it's the fact that because he's got um, Gamaliel's sort of uh, thoughts nagging him. Yeah. Okay, uh, right, moving on, um, verse 8. 
And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So you think, think about grace and power. What a combination <laughs> to see in someone. You want him on your team, don't you, really? You want him in your church. <laughs> and wonders and signs. To this point, we've really only seen these through the apostles. So Stephen made an impact with his actions and his public speaking, which we'll come to in a couple of verses' time. So he wasn't just a helper with food distribution. In other words, he was, if you like, a kind of fully-fledged deacon and actually he was operating maybe a, you know, above his calling. I mean, he... And the way he reacted in terms of the, um, his defence and his... Uh, his grace in, in that most difficult of circumstances. In other words, the way he forgives those who stone him is quite remarkable. Okay, so on, uh, move on to verse 9. Uh, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So the... Uh, there's a few things that need explaining there, really. The synagogue of the freedmen. So these are the Jews who had been slaves, but were now free. Um, although, I mean, there were vast numbers of slaves in the Roman Empire. But interestingly, their legal system allowed for the possibility of slaves to become free. And, and Paul talks about that. You know, if you have the opportunity to buy your freedom, then do it. Go for it. Go grab it with both hands. But, um, and, and slaves could become free either by earning it, which was actually quite difficult because it was an expensive operation, or by the generosity or the gratitude of their master. Now, we have a little comment in, later on in the book of Acts, so I'll just jump to that and read it. Um, so this is Acts chapter 22, verses 22 to 29. Oh, sorry, verses 28 to 29. Um, so this is when Paul is kind of getting into trouble again. He's on the Temple Mount and uh, there's a, a riot is about to break out, you know, story of his life. Um, and he gets rescued by, pulled out of the crowd by the centurion at the top end of the Temple Mount by the Alex, uh, Antonia Fortress. Um, but then he's um, brought into the barracks and they're wanting to uh, examine him by flogging. Um, I'm just going to read from but verse 25. Is it? Yeah, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And, he, and Paul said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So yeah, that's just an example of the situation where you could buy your citizenship. Basically what meant that, um, particularly for someone who was getting old, uh, 
in their master's house. And if you've got a generous master, they may well make them free. So that would be another reason why Jews uh, who became free might want to migrate to the vicinity of Jerusalem and hence the synagogue for those who have been, those Jews who have been made free. There was a mitzvah to redeem Jewish slaves. In any case, there was undoubtedly a large uh, ongoing process of Jews buying other Jews into freedom. Mm -hmm. yeah. And four places are mentioned here. Well, uh, okay, two cities, uh, Cyrene and Alexandria. These are the, I think, pretty much the largest Greek Roman cities in North Africa. Uh, Actually, Alexandria was a real centre for Judaism, and it was where that was the place where I think it was in the second century BC that the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures, was written. Because of the there was such a number of Greek-speaking Jews that they needed the uh, Scripture in their mother tongue. So yes, uh, Cyrene, which is uh, Libya area, and Alexandria. Two big cities there of the diaspora. And the other two names are Cilicia and Asia. So this is kind of two areas that kind of bracket what we now think of as Turkey. Asia in um, West Turkey and Cilicia in East Turkey. And I don't know if you recall, but um, uh, Tarsus, where Paul comes from, is in Cilicia. So it's that kind of on the, uh, if you like, the top right-hand corner of the Mediterranean Sea, that, that corner there. So what he's saying is that there are these significant areas of the diaspora. Um, and Alexandria in particular was um, an, an intellectual centre. There, there were famous uh, philosophers there based in Alexandria. So you get the impression that these people, in other words, the Jews from this, this part of the diaspora, could hold their own in debates and were skilled at rhetoric. You know, the, so there would have been people amongst them that were the in intellectual versions of uh, the Hellenistic Jews. And what do you know? They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. That's, that's verse 10. So... Um, as if he, he was able to, Stephen, with his wisdom and his power and his, uh, his grasp of the understanding of this risen life in Christ, he was able to, to face down any all-comers. And obviously the effect of this was uh, anger and, you know, amongst them. And so they, they acted on that. Um, yeah, it says again that the, um, his opposition couldn't um, withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So you've got this idea of wisdom and spirit which comes in the beginning of the, uh, the chapter there as the criteria for the selection of the deacons. So then uh, verse 11. So what happened? They secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they, um, okay, by instigated, basically it means they kind of put words in their mouths. Whether or not they, the people doing it realised that they were bearing false witness or whether they were just repeating a rumour that had been generated thinking it was the 
truth. But anyway, the outcome of that was false witness. Hmm? Fake news. Yeah, fake news. Yeah. Of the most destructive sort, the most vindictive sort, this kind of what they were doing. So they stirred up the people, verse 12, and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set out false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So let's have a bit of a discussion. Let's have a think about the similarities here between what Jesus encountered and what Stephen is encountering. False witnesses, for sure. Yeah. Same accusation. Yeah, same accusation. And destroy the temple. Yeah. Okay, well, let's yeah. look at the, uh, the verse that references that. So um, I think let's turn to Mark. So this is worth turning to. Maybe this was the same people. Um, well, we don't know. It, um, Presumably, we're not talking about a long time difference, so certainly the majority of the Sanhedrin would have been the same people. Um, sorry, Mark, uh, chapter 14. Well, let's, see, let, let's read a, a paragraph, shall we, so about what, the circumstances that Jesus was facing. Mark 14, and I'll read from verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say... I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. So that's the point you are making, Arie, that it's the same accusation. And we notice that in, in John's Gospel, he actually, um, early on, in chapter 2, he clarifies this point. Um, so I'll just, I'll just read the... Uh, these couple of verses from John's Gospel, John chapter 2, where uh, he explains this. So, um, this is John chapter 2, verses 19 to uh, 21, when Jesus uh, cleanses the temple. Um, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. I mean, we all know that, but, uh, Paul, I mean, but uh, John puts it in 
to make it clear that uh, because obviously this accusation was doing the rounds and so uh, John deals with it early on in his gospel. So, we, okay, we've got the same accusation. Uh, kind of looking, still looking for parallels between Jesus' uh, uh, situation in front of, the, uh, uh, you know, mentioned in Matthew and Mark. Well, mm. um, well, all the Gospels, and then the situation that, is, that Stephen is facing. So we've got the same group of people, elders, scribes, and the chief priests. In other words, the, the 70 or so people that make up the Sanhedrin. When Jesus says, um, do not say that I have come to destroy the law, mm-hmm. because I have not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it, um, that is a, um, he's obviously responding to a suggestion that he has, that it made again, when Jesus says that. Uh, so that is an implication that Jesus, what Jesus has been saying is being interpreted as a, as a negation of the law. Yeah, or maybe he partly anticipated the accusation as well. The formality of the accusation doesn't say the law. Actually, it's customs that Moses handed down to us. It's it's the tradition that's being threatened here, and that is being imputed to Moses, and unjustly so, as Stephen points out in his next sermon in the next chapter. Yeah, I think it's it's not the same accusations because Jesus was accused to be the Messiah, mm. and Stephen uh, um, is accused to to um, um, pursue a new religion. Yeah, and this is the, the progress of history, which happened in Jerusalem. So Jesus somehow he, he split that society, the religious society, and Stephen is like a huge huge follower. So I think it's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yes, I, I agree with you. There are, there are clear differences uh, in, in the trial. But, um, but enough parallels to make it, uh, to, for people to make the association. Um, and also the phrase that they seized him. And so that's effectively what the Roman soldiers did to Jesus down in the Garden of Gethsemane. They kind of... Yes, and the punishment is uh, different. Because Jesus, he came to be God, and he was crucified. Mm. And Stephen, he he got a lighter death penalty. Mm. So he said, uh, "Yes, the, it's not because uh, I've always been told that the um, the Jews didn't have the authority to uh, kill people, so stoning didn't happen that much." So. You get the impression that yeah, it was contrary to the Roman uh, yeah. You occupation. Get, yeah, you get the impression that uh, yeah, it got out of hand. It shouldn't have done, but yeah. Um, Perhaps being done by a morbid might be difficult to say you did it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's just and go on to the last verse. This, this raises a question. And they were gazing at him. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So who knows what the face of an angel looks like? Presumably it was glowing or something. So they, that's how they perceived yeah. it. And that must have made them even more angry. Yeah. That would be reminiscent of Moses coming down from the presence of God. 
apparently had entered into that place of extreme grace that uh, has been testified by many people when mm. at the last moment when you're up against it there is a powerful influx of uh, anointing grace and enablement and mm. Stephen had apparently moved into it and yeah. it was impervious <coughs> yeah. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, and I, I like to think of it as a uh, when someone face, someone's face closed like that, in the sense of the way Moses and maybe in this situation is that they've been in the presence of God so long that they're beginning to reflect something about the glory of God, and so it's like those that lead a blameless life. They know that the glory of a blameless life is actually just a reflected glory. It's the it's the uh, power of the presence of, of God. Just, and the people may not, may not be aware of it, but it come, comes out of their, the things they do, the way they react, and, and their face at times. Um, but it's appropriate that Moses is a person who is, is kind of sets the standard in this area, that he communed with God, that God spoke to him like a man speaks to his friend. And he came out, his face was shining. Just another comment. Uh, Sepharinus Serov, who was a, a Greek Orthodox priest who lived in the forest somewhere, I can't remember where, used to read the Gospels every week. And um, uh, and uh, he was staying to the them aloud outside his religion and he used to be This is the end of the 19th century, I think. Um, and <clears throat> after a while, he said, What is that? What's the light that's shining over the forest? What is it? And people <coughs> eventually found this chance separate, who's called separate just the globe. And uh, he would heal people and that sort of thing. <coughs> and eventually he was picked up by the um, by journalists and things people to see. Um, quite remarkable uh, um, testimonies of healing that took place. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. It's kind of interesting. So, um, can you kind of look that information up on the interweb? You, you can go on it. If you, if you type in suffering or so on, you'll find. Okay. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Somewhere in Russia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What name was it? Okay, so I think we've reached that point. Uh, I was wondering whether we would actually jump in in um, chapter 7, but we're not going to. Um, but this, the interesting thing about uh, Stephen's defence in chapter 7 is understanding, as Ariel was saying, what's going on and why he's, saying, why he's selecting the stories he's selecting and um, how it end, why it ends up how it does. You know, um, with a you know powerful statement like, "The Most High does not dwell in a temple made with hands." What's really interesting, I mean, initially to me is when it, the text says false, false 
testimony. And it's, it's not too hard to figure out that the false testimony is that Jesus said he would destroy the temple, which he never did. He said, you destroy it, and I'll build it. Then, of course, talking about something else. The lawyers, if the lawyer in us wants to say, oh, no, no, that, that wording is not right. We, we, you know, categorically, not, not true. Here, I've got my own witnesses lined up here, you know, and get off. And he didn't use that defense at all. Neither did Jesus, because the other underlying issues were so much more important and heavyweight. And the confrontation and the bringing these things out in this opportunity was virtually priceless compared with the idea of, you know, getting off through uh, a bit of superior rhetoric, rhetoric which uh, he could have done. And, okay, and just to finish off, we have the tradition that Stephen was uh, stoned uh, outside the East Gate, though that's a later tradition than he was stoned outside the Damascus Gate. That's an earlier, earlier tradition. And I'm, I slightly favour the earlier tradition, not just because it's earlier, but actually it seems to me a more plausible place for it to happen, because there was a quarry there. And the uh, instructions of the rabbis are that you throw someone off a cliff more than the height of two men, in other words, you know, about a four metre drop, and then you stone them. Uh, so there is a cliff like that um, in that vicinity, in the vicinity of what, what we think of as the garden tomb now. Um, so yeah, I think that was. And way, way back in, I think it's the, uh, uh, is it the fourth century? Anyway, there was a basilica built there in memory, in that location uh, of um, Stephen's martyrdom. Okay, well, thank you or not. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King. <laughs>